Get lit. Good morning, good evening, and everything in between. Welcome to episode seven of Get Lit, the literary podcast where we explore the history behind some of literature's greatest works and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Steph Spars, here with the co-host, John Stricker who will actually be leading tonight's um, podcast, which I think will be a lot of fun. Um, and we're here to talk this week a little bit about... Kurt Vonnegut. John's very favorite author. Very favorite. So just a couple of quick things before we get started. Um, one, I have stickers that say Get Lit on them. Yes. They're very cool. <laughs> we will post them on Twitter and Instagram. If you're interested in procuring one of said stickers, reach out to us. We'll get it to you somehow. They're very cool. Um, we also have a correction from last week, which I realized about four days after we published it. Um, I talked about Mark Twain dying in a really poetic way with Haley's Comet. Do you remember that? Yeah. I accidentally nice. said it was until I messed up real bad. I accidentally said he... Um, was born in 1935. It was 1835 that he was born. So I was just off by a century, but it's fine. Yeah, give or take. Give or take 100 years. So it's still <laughs> poetic. It's still nice. He was born in 19... No, he was born in 1835 and then died when the comet left. Um, so I just wanted to shout out that correction there um, and acknowledge that it's okay to get things wrong as long as you check them and fix your mistakes. Kids, that's a lesson to you. Students, fix your mistakes when you see them. So, um, I have nothing to do. I didn't have to bribe John because he's doing it all this time. So, what what are you going to bribe me with? Um, well, I brought nothing for you, and I think that's all I got. All right. So, <laughs> I, uh, I might fall asleep then during this episode because I have nothing to uh, contribute at the moment. Oh, and please. you brought nothing to motivate me to pay attention. I, I bought some, <laughs> some collected short stories of Kurt Vonnegut that I can lend you. No. Very good. <laughs> All right. So, um, I guess without further ado, John, good luck uh, with this. Hopefully the audiences like it. Well, thank you for that warm introduction, Stephanie. <laughs> uh, the first thing I wanted to say is that Kurt Vonnegut is the first author that we've talked about where we lived while he was living. And I'd also like to say that I think it's sort of controversial that we are talking about Kurt Vonnegut, because a lot of people in literary circles would not consider him to be a true writer of literature, but rather science fiction. I think that the contingent of people who would say that is getting smaller, but... Uh, I think that Is he that writes... Is that because people just don't read him anymore? Or Stop it. All of his <laughs> books are still in print. <laughs> um, and just to say it, like how relatable I think he still is today, he has been on 18 banned books list, and the latest one in 2014. So, I mean, people still find his ideas and the way he goes about thinking of the world controversial. All right, I think I have some of these disclaimers out of the way, and I, I want to start with uh, with Vonnegut. He was born in Indianapolis on November 11th, 1922. So, Stephanie, do you know what November 11th is? Two months after my birthday. That's true. It's also today <laughs> Veterans Day, but at the time was Armistice, Armistice Day. That's right, which I think... Oh, my. <laughs> I think is a little bit uh, foreshadowing on some of the topics and issues that Vonnegut would tackle in his later works. So I think that's sort of cool. Um, his mother was Edith Leiber, 
and she came from German ancestry, as did Kurt Vonnegut Sr., who was obviously Kurt's dad, was a well-respected architect. Um, however, they were both vis- busy with their social life. They were an upper, you know, middle-class family, and so a lot of Vonnegut, Vonnegut's childhood... Can you have a social life in Indianapolis? At the time, believe it or not, it, it was it was actually very socially active, especially within the German community there. Hmm. Um, but they were busy doing their own thing. So Vonnegut was mostly raised by their African-American cook named Ida Calpurnia. Young. Yes. No. <laughs> yes, Calpurnia. A very similar kind of thing, except, you know, Atticus was more involved in his daughter's life. Uh, so anyhow, things are going swimmingly for the Vonnegut's until two things happen. In 1929, we have the Great Depression, and at the same time... <laughs> oh, man. Right. And at the same time, we have Prohibition. So remember, the Libers have a brewery, so they lose not all of anymore, that income. they don't. No. <laughs> and then, as an architect, Vonnegut Sr. is obviously not building buildings during the Great Depression, and this greatly affects both them and their marriage. Greatly. Yes, Great you get depression. it? Greatly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... The father, Kurt Vonnegut Sr., sort of deals with this by withdrawing from society and sort of taking on this role as like a dreamer, sort of artsy kind of person where he, he used to be like more interested in, in being an architect. And then his so mother... he would have worked at Starbucks. It, yeah, something like <laughs> that. He really withdrew from what he had enjoyed before the Great Depression and then his mother became very bitter um, and would routinely mock the father for having this, you know, change in sort of his um, interests. And then, to top it all off, they weren't able to send Vonnegut to private school, which was a huge embarrassment for them. Uh, so Vonnegut attends public school number 43. Oh, God. I know. Public school. Oh, no. And then he attends <laughs> Shortridge High School, which is a public high school, where he cuts his teeth with some of his first writing at the Shortridge Echo, which is the school newspaper. So, um, Vonnegut then goes off to college, and he really wanted to study the humanities, but his brother, Bertrand, had gone to... Yes? Just Bertrand? (laughs) That's the joke. (laughs) It kind of is. Yikes. Um, What did they call him, Bertie? I don't think so. Bertrand, I... B-E-R-T-A-N-D. Bertrand. Bertrand? Maybe. I don't know. I'll consult... It's German. I'll consult the experts. Very good. Uh, Google. So his Bertrand. brother went to study chemical uh, science, and his father and his brother both suggested that he study a more useful discipline. Useful I've heard in that quotation. before. <laughs> <laughs> right, but at the same time, don't you think it's really sad? So Kurt Vonnegut Sr. Yes. had this huge passion for architecture, then the Great Depression really steals that from him, like to the point where he won't even convince his son to go into something that's closer to the humanities. So Vonnegut uh, trusts his brother and his father, and he goes to Cornell, where he tries to major in biochemistry. Uh, but really, he's a neglectful student, as so many of the authors <laughs> we've talked about are, but he really likes working on the Cornell Sun. So uh, his time at Cornell was not to last, and following poor grades, he was put on probation, and then what sent him over the edge was a satirical article in the newspaper that was anti-war. Uh, and so then he was eventually encouraged to drop out of Cornell, which he did. Yeah. Um, and so 
Then, after you drop out, and it's World War II this time, he, he enlisted in the army, and he eventually became part of an infantry battalion. Uh, so while he's still training before he goes over to the war, he goes home for Mother's Day in May on May 14th, 1944, and he finds his mother has committed oh, suicide. so this is also the end of the war then. That's yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, so he's in school for the first part of the war. Mm-hmm. But How after did he, he drops get an out, exemption from that? Students, when, college students had an exemption. That. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but That's like I said... That's also a bummer about his mom. Right? On Mother's Day. So like she knew he was coming back and she knew it was Mother's Day. And she commits suicide and her son finds her in the state. And Birdie or no? No, Vonnegut comes back from from training camp and finds her. Uh, she had apparently been under the influence of alcohol and taken pills, so there's some debate whether or not it was even purposeful. Yikes. But uh, this really hit Vonnegut hard. Um, and it's actually, I think, what he would see is almost the end of like a part of his life. So uh, later on in interviews, as he's an older man... He asks where home is because he's lived a number of different places, and he says home is eight years is in home is Indianapolis. When I was eight years old, when I had a mother and a father. Notice it's before the depression as well, so it's it's really profoundly hit him. Um, but he was given three months to process this before he was sent to Germany, and was I know it's not much time. Good, well, I was going to say good prep for I, what's to come. I guess, and then he's captured in the Battle of the Bulge. Um, and is then stationed as a prisoner of war in Dresden um, during the war. Germany. Yes. So what if, here's a thought that I'm having, what if he and Salinger fought alongside each other? Because you remember when I was talking about Salinger and how he was in the war? Right. He was one of the first people to liberate the camps, like yeah. go into the camps after the, so that's 1944, 1945. So like, what if they were like, they knew each other and like, what if they like didn't know who the other one was and they like helped each other with their books, but they like didn't know. And then they like win literary conspiracy. Yeah, we have to start a new podcast called like, Literary fan- Conspiracy. Yes, Literary Conspiracy. <laughs> it's a great, a great ring to it. All right, we'll do a feature episode. I've got plenty of conspiracies. Let me tell you about Gertrude and Hamlet sometime. Ophelia, it's a great one. Yes. Um, anywho, so he gets, he's a prisoner of war. In Dresden, as Germany. We all are. Right. That, um, and no one thought that Dresden would get bombed because it was very minimally involved with the war in Germany. Uh, and it was a city known for its culture and high art. But on February 13th, 1945, the, there was an airstrike on Dresden, uh, and much of the city was destroyed. Uh, the prisoners of war who were stationed in Dresden were still prisoners of war, and Vonnegut survived by being in, meat, in a meat locker in the basement during the bombing, and it was Slaughterhouse Number 5, oh. which is where... Was he looking for a snack? No, they stationed okay. all of the prisoners of war <laughs> down there. Uh, that was just where they Kept they were stationed. Them. Yeah, during the... Whenever it would be like uh, an air raid, they, mm-hmm. would, uh, they would go there. Um, so they put the prisoners to work. And he also got jerky. Yeah. Not quite. (laughs) (laughs) So they put the prisoners to work excavating bodies from the rubble. So shortly after this, the war is over and Vonnegut goes back to Indianapolis and and marries his high school sweetheart, Jane Uh Cox. 
And uh, they then shortly thereafter moved to Chicago, where they both enroll at the University of Chicago. Um, GI Bill? Yes, exactly. And Vonnegut uh, goes for anthropology this time, so he gets away <gasps> from the hard sciences. Uh, so he supplements his time, uh, supplements his income by writing for some newspapers and some journals while he's going to school there. But eventually, uh, he writes his thesis, and it gets universally rejected by all of the faculty at the University of Chicago, and he ends up dropping out. What's it about? His his thesis was about the similarities in leadership between the Ghost Dance Indian Revolt and Cubism. Oh. I know, it's a little out there, but that's that's sort of Vonnegut. And if you read the thesis, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, so then in 1947, he gets hired on at GE because his brother works there. Uh, he's in the um, pub- publicity. He's in the anthropology department of GE. <laughs> no, but he does, he does use some of that writing skills that he'd had for the newspapers to do the publicity side of GE. And then he has two kids around this time, Mark and Edith. And then um, in 1950, after a little bit of a struggle, he has his first piece published called The Report on the Barnhouse Effect. Uh, and he was paid $750 for that. Ooh. I know, right? So he doesn't make it as a writer yet, and he still has to try and find other sources of income, but he decides that he wants to leave GE. So he has a series of interesting career choices that he makes. He tries to be an English teacher. He tries to work for an advertising <laughs> agency. Hard. It is. It is hard. <laughs> and it's not for him. Then he goes and works for an adver- advertising agency, and then he opens the first Saab dealership in the United States, what? which folds. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah, right. Um, but when in doubt, sell cars. <laughs> he tried, you know? Um, but then he finally publishes Player Piano, which is his first uh, novel. And he's sort of labeled as a sci-fi author, which is a nice way that, like, um, critics would just sort of negate the larger sort of messages of a work and sort of try and relegate you to a a subgenre. Uh, And Vonnegut sort of responded to this by saying, no one can simultaneously be a respectable writer and understand how a refrigerator works, which I think is a pretty (laughs) funny quote, (laughs) because it's either, you know, all literary. You can't mix in sort of that uh, So I have a chance. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea how a refrigerator works. I'm going to be a writer. (laughs) Great. He was saying like that, folks... Like, that, that hands-on sort of understanding yeah. is, doesn't have a place in literature. Which I think is sort of interesting, that sci-fi work, especially during this time, because you're hitting your postmodernists, which is Salinger and Vonnegut. Um, a little bit later, you'll hit Eric Blair, a.k.a. George Orwell, um, mm. and all of these other authors who are trying to figure out what's going on after World War II ends. Um, so the idea that they would be discredited because of the the themes on which they're writing I think is sort of interesting but that also maybe parallels some of like Dada and and some of the other absurdist art movements that occur after the war is that everyone's producing all of these really interesting work but no one takes them seriously because no one understands it no one can operate a refrigerator (laughs) right I, I really liked that quote so in 1954 they have their third child Nanette um and then in 1958, 
I haven't talked about her yet, but Vonnegut had a sister that he was very close to named Alice. Uh, Alice is diagnosed with a terminal illness, um, and so then while she's in the hospital, uh, they get news that Alice's husband has died in a train crash in New York City. Um, it was actually a really uh, significant event, uh, and then Alice dies two days later, which makes all of their kids Aww. orphans. And so the Vonnegut's now with three children, oh. taken, exactly, taken mm-hmm. three additional children, um, and just sort of to touch on how important Alice was to Vonnegut, one of his rules for creative writing is to always write for one person. And that one person Vonnegut always felt himself writing for was Alice. So this was another big loss for him. And he sort of sort of uh, uses this as an inspiration to write the book Slapstick, which we'll talk about later. Um, so then he goes on to write a series of, of books, uh, including um, Mother Night, which actually includes my favorite Vonnegut quote. Um, he writes Harrison Bergeron, and then in 1963... Well, what's the quote? The quote? Yep. We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. Nice. That's that's a great classroom poster. Yes, I had it next to my bed while I was in college, just to remind myself. Uh, so then he goes on to write Harrison Bergeron, which is a popular short story mm-hmm. that they read in high school. Cool film adaptation of that, by the way, online. I know nothing more about that to contribute, but I know it's really good. It is really good. Uh <laughs> So then in 1963, he writes Cat's Cradle, and uh, then the University of Chicago actually accepts Cat's Cradle in lieu of a thesis to award him his master's <laughs> 25 years after he attends you the know school. What? <laughs> Better late than never. I guess. Um, and then in the mid-1960s, uh, he hasn't become famous yet, and writing isn't producing the dividends that he thinks it's going to. He actually considers abandoning writing altogether. Uh, But then, almost as uh, a life preserver, he gets asked to host the Iowa Writers' Workshop, much like Flannery O'Connor. Well, she didn't host. She was a participant. Oh, she was a participant. But still very uh, significant. And another Midwestern writer voice. That's right. Uh, So while he's there, he writes Slaughterhouse-Five in 1969, which is probably his most famous uh, work. The main themes of the book are, are very anti-war, and a lot of people embrace Vonnegut at this time as sort of the voice of the counterculture in the 60s that are going on. But you, John Lennon. Right, mm. but you have to remember Vonnegut isn't John Lennon. He's much older, and he has mm. six kids. And so while people think of him as, as this, you know, 60s sort of icon, he, he's really a a dad and and a husband and just trying to keep his family afloat financially at this time. So he's not as hippy-dippy as I think a lot of the people who really like to read his work sort of felt. Um, So then once he became famous... The doors were I'm dead serious. So like Slaughterhouse-Five. And, and then he's famous after Slaughterhouse-Five. That's okay. It goes viral. It, it does. Viral. It goes viral. And he goes to teach creative writing at Harvard and then the College of New York. Uh, but with this fame, the Vonnegut's marriage starts to deteriorate, especially because his wife, uh, Jill, starts to become very attached to Christianity, which is something that uh, we'll talk about Vonnegut's leadings in the future. And so they end up separating in 1971, uh, and that's when he goes to live in, in New York. 
Um, in 19... Without the kids. Without the kids. But so. you have to understand at this time, so that's 71 and 58. So the kids are grown up by the most for the most okay. part at this time. <laughs> like, that's sort of rude. Yeah, it would definitely be <laughs> Let's rude. watch all my sister's kids, but only you. <laughs> no, and he also actually remained very close friends with his ex-wife un- until she died in, in 1986. Um, so then he's in New York City, and in 1974, his oldest son Mark has a mental breakdown, which sort of exasperates Kurt Vonnegut's sort of struggle with depression. Um... And I think in 1976, he writes Slapstick, and that's another manifestation of of the grief of his sister dying. Uh, But then in 1979, he marries Jill Kremens, and they adopt a daughter. Um, And he publishes five books between 1979 and 1990. Uh, However, in 1984 he's hospitalized for taking too many pills in what some people characterize as an attempted suicide uh, attempt. But his son, Mark, the one who had the mental breakdown, uh, (laughs) he he makes observations that he doesn't think that his father was really trying to do that. And and when they actually see what he's taken, he doesn't have a lethal dose of of, of anything in his whole body. So So trust the son with the mental breakdown. Well, he, he's a medical doctor <laughs> now. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, but uh, Vonnegut goes on to publish two additional books after 1990. Uh, towards the end of his life in the 2000s, he becomes very much an, uh, uh, an activist against the Iraq War um, and becomes sincerely gloomy and more depressing. Uh, a la Mark Twain. Yes, very similar to Mark Twain. Uh, Vonnegut then threatens to sue Paul Mall's cigarette company, which is the cigarettes he smoked, because they had promised to kill him earlier. So... (laughs) (laughs) All right. He was a character, but eventually Vonnegut (laughs) dies on April 11th, 2017, due to complications from a fall. (laughs) Yes. Um, And so that's a quick... Breeze through. Uh, Stephanie put quick in quotation marks. <laughs> I think it was quick. There's so much more to want to talk about. But uh, that's like a quick overview of his life. So what are the takeaways? I feel like we kind of have historically wrapped up this podcast by kind of talking about the significance of an author, why they're worth reading, um, why it's worth pursuing their work. So if you were to think about that for Vonnegut, why should we continue reading his work? What significance does it hold today? Um, Why should next generations continue to pick up his books? Vonnegut, first and foremost, is a strong humanist which I think is is a reason why we should read his works. I think this is the quote he sort of sums up is, why life? Like, what what, what are we here for? And, and he says, we're here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. And so a lot of his books touch on that, that in the craziness of, of our society where a lot of things are prioritized above helping each other, really goodness and kindness are what we mm. should focus on. The good is under construction. Right. And again, I think style-wise, Vonnegut is concise and direct, and I always feel like he's talking right to me. And he uses simple language to tell these cosmic parables that point out the flimsiness of our 20th century ideals and icons. 
great. No, but I think... Light optimistic reading. <laughs> well, he is a way of tackling these very heavy subjects in a light way. Mm-hmm. And humorous a lot of the time. Right. With, with a very sort of dark and, and sharp, I think, angle. And so I think those are the reasons why we should still read him today. All right. Well, maybe this is something I can put in classrooms. I know he's got a lot of great short stories that I've only ever read because I've never read a novel of his. That's okay. <laughs> I'll get there. He writes great short stories. Yeah, he does. They're awesome. Um, so thank you. I hope you enjoyed being in the captain's seat. You can take off your seatbelt. You made it. <laughs> thank you. to the other side. So um, next week, we actually have a really awesome interview coming up to kind of roll with John's uh, author that was living when we were living. Um, This author is still alive. So we will get an opportunity to not only explore some new work, but also get to hear from a real live author. Um, So do definitely tune in for that. Feel free again, as usual, to reach out to us on any platforms and let us know how we're doing what we're doing. Uh, We're always very interested in continuing the dialogue um, via any channels you can really reach. So thank you again so much for all your support uh, for pushing this out and for helping us um, continue to put out cool and interesting podcast work for you to listen to. And uh, I guess as always, we can wrap it up and thank you for keeping it lit.